been doing a couple of different things this month, since it's kind of a special month. Uh, first, we've been looking at some carols. Christmas carol theology has been our topic for the last few weeks, and we'll finish that today. Uh, the second thing that we've been trying to do is look at a little Christmas history and find out a little bit where Christmas came from and uh, try to tie the secular to the, the religious uh, you may have burned a Yule log or talked about burning a Yule log and not even know what that means. Uh, there's a lot of Christmas traditions in America. We're kind of a melting pot here, so we've got stuff from all over the world. Uh, and the Scandinavians were actually the ones who uh, burned a Yule log on December 21st, the shortest day of the year. The days start getting longer. Uh, so they would have a festival around that and uh, celebrate the return of the sun was what they were really uh, having the party for. And they'd pick a large log and they'd put it on the fire and then they'd party until it burned out. And uh, each spark was supposed to bring some kind of a extra blessing uh, that year. So that's where we got that one. The, the Germans decorated evergreens where we got the tree from. Uh, they were celebrating the, the coming greening of the earth. Uh, a lot of this was around the, the change of seasons on December the 21st, you may notice. Uh, the Romans had all kinds of holidays. Uh, Saturnalia was one of their big ones. Saturn was the god of architecture, of <laughs> agriculture. Josh, you got me confused there. Uh, the god of agriculture. And uh, Harvest time and all of that in the midwinter there is what they celebrated. Uh, Mithra, the everlasting sun, was supposedly born on December 25th or about then. Uh, and mainly all of their stuff was pretty festive. Uh, way more than festive. There was a lot of partying, uh, a lot of drunken orgies and all kinds of things around all of their gods and goddesses and what they carried on. Uh, the actual birth of Jesus is something we don't know about. We don't know the date. We don't know the even time of year. Uh, Christians, early Christians, knew when the resurrection happened. It was around the Passover, so they did talk about that some, but uh, nobody even had an idea about celebrating the birthday of Jesus for hundreds of years. They just didn't pay attention to it for some reason. Uh, they celebrated the death of Jesus every Sunday. Uh, but after 300, 350 years or so, uh, somebody thought, well, we ought to have a birth date for Jesus. So they asked the scholars to figure out when it was. And one scholar said, well, it was January 6th. And another one said it was March the 25th. And another one said May the 20th. And another one said September. And nobody knew. God just had made sure there was no record left that anybody could discern when it was. Uh, so the Catholic Church got the bright idea, well, let's pick one, and maybe we can get rid of some of this partying that's going on. We'll kind of co-opt some of the winter festivals and the pagan things that are going on. We'll call December the 25th the birthday of Christ, and everybody will celebrate that instead of all these other wild things. Uh, 349 was when they finally 
decreed that, and not everybody went along. Most Christians in the world said, no, you can't celebrate a birthday for Jesus. He's not a pagan God, and we're not going to do that. So it was a long, long time uh, before it kind of became accepted that that was Jesus' birthday. And then we talked last week a little bit about how even after all of that, uh, the Puritans and Oliver Cromwell and actually the Puritans that came to America didn't think you ought to celebrate Christmas. And for years in America... Uh, Christmas was not a special religious holiday. All these other things were poured in there, and we had a Christmas. Uh, but, for instance, in 1789, Congress met on December the 25th. It was no special thing. It was just a day, and they went ahead and had a congressional session. Uh, it was 1870 before Christmas was declared a federal holiday. Well, all of these things went together. Uh, since America's a melting pot, we got a little bit of Scandinavian and German and Roman partying and birth of Jesus, and uh, it, it's all mixed in there somehow. So that's kind of the, some of the more history of Christmas that we've been talking a little bit about. Uh, of course, that begs the question, uh, uh, what do we celebrate it as? What do we do as Christians? And what I've been saying for this series is that we understand Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. But everybody in the, the world is thinking about Jesus and talking about Jesus, and we ought to probably uh, do the same thing and use that as an opportunity to uh, share our faith in Jesus. So let's get to the main topic here. We've been talking about Christmas carols. Uh, the first one we talked about was Old Little Town of Bethlehem. And uh, saw the things that were in there, and Jesus, uh, God uses insignificant, uh, unknown things, weak things, foolish things. Uh, last week we talked about joy to the world, and what true joy is, and what the birth of Jesus means to that, and relates to that. Uh, today's carol is "Hark, the Herald Angels Sing." I told you last week it was my favorite one. Uh, from the way you sang out on it, I think it might be some of your favorites too. Uh, it's a good, good uh, song in the tune and the, the way we sing it and all that. Uh, but the message in it is why it's my favorite. Uh, the story of this carol, we've been trying to do a little history about each carol. And the story of this one involves two men. And uh, neither one of them would like this carol. They produced it, but they wouldn't like it. They would not approve of what we just did, uh, the way we sang it. Uh, John Wesley, the one on the left there, uh, he and his brother Charles started Methodism, uh, and they were quite serious scholars. Uh, we talked about how good carols, good hymns were written by theologians, not by musicians. And John Wesley wrote the words to this carol, uh, in 1739, and not exactly like it's in our book. In fact, if you look at your book or your handout, I don't think I put it on the handout, but in your book, there's three names there, the, the words and the music, and uh, then somebody else named Cummings did a little rearranging. Uh, when John Wesley wrote it, the first line said, Hark, uh, hark how the welkin rings. Probably nobody in here knows what welkin means. Uh, it's the, the vaults of heaven. It's the heavens sing is the word that uh, Wesley chose. Uh, 
Well, a fellow named Whitefield actually was one that changed that. He arranged, rearranged the words a little bit and doctored it up the way he thought it ought to be, and Wesley didn't like that. The other thing Wesley didn't like, or wouldn't have liked, is he wanted it sung very slowly and somber, and that's just the way he was, and that's what he insisted on while he was alive. Uh, the other fellow on the picture is Felix Mendelssohn, and he wrote uh, secular music expressly. In fact, he didn't want any of his music to be used for religious purposes. And uh, when Gutenberg invented the printing press, he wrote a cantata to celebrate that and said he didn't want any of his stuff used for religious things. Well, a few years later, a guy named Cummings took uh, Mendelssohn's music and Wesley's words and put them together. And it is sung a lot more joyously than Wesley would like. And the music was certainly not something, or the words were not something that Mendelssohn would like his music tied to. Uh, So if poor old Wesley and Mendelssohn were here today, they would not be happy. Uh, But together, (laughs) their works and Cummings and Whitefields and everybody else that has messed with it over the years, uh, we've got a great carol here, a great hymn, actually. Whether you call it a carol or not, or not, it's a... A great hymn. It's got more theology packed into it uh, than we could talk about if we stayed here all day. Uh, We're going to go through it very quickly and kind of give you an overview of it. Uh, But there's a lot of theology in this hymn. In fact, if you showed up from another nation and uh, another world and didn't know anything about Jesus, didn't know anything about Christianity, this would be a good carol to start with. If you sit somebody down and and read through this carol with them, they pretty well got it. Uh, Wesley put it all in there. So let's consider the theology in this carol. Let's read the first stanza. Uh, Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth, and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. All right, what stanza one has in it, what Wesley put in that is the birth announcement. He said, the angels say, hark, listen to this. And they announce the birth of Jesus. The story that was just read for you from Luke chapter 2 tells us that story, tells tells us how it happened. And that's what Wesley picks to uh, tell in his first stanza here. And it's interesting, if you read that, what's there? Angels and shepherds. That's what's in the story. Angels and shepherds. It makes you think a little bit about that first carol we studied, doesn't it? How God doesn't do things the way we think he'd do things. If you were going to announce the birth of your only begotten son that was going to save the world, you know, I'd probably go for some earthquakes and some lightning and, I mean, all kinds of things. But God sent one angel to tell some shepherds. 
One angel made the announcement. Now, some other angels showed up later, but the, the initial announcement was just one angel. Remember how God uses insignificant things to show how much he loves us? Maybe he was doing that that day. Uh, <clears throat> the shepherds were the lowest of the low. They weren't, wouldn't be considered blue collar. They were lower than blue collar. And one angel showed up to them and told them, here's what's happened. Uh, the, the importance of the announcement is emphasized a little bit by Wesley. He said that angels herald the announcement. Back then, uh, kings and princes had heralds that would go out and make their announcements for them. They would blow the trumpet and get everybody's attention and make the big announcement. And this angel came and said, there's a new king. There's going to be peace on earth because of this new king. This new king is going to reconcile God and man. That's what this is all about. And then he says, all nations should rise. And proclaim with the angels that Christ is born. That's how important this announcement is. So that's all in the first stanza. Stanza number two says, Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Now that is a verse. <laughs> That's a stanza. That is a, a mini course in Christology. It's, it's got everything in there that you need to know about Christ. And that's what the second verse does. It tells us who Jesus was. The birth announcement that he's come to bring peace on earth and reconcile God to man and nations ought to rise and proclaim it with the angels. Now he tells us why. Here's who Jesus was. And he talks about his deity. John chapter 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Then verse 14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what happened on that day. So he talks about his deity in there. He talks about the virgin birth, the virgin womb. That had been prophesied hundreds of years before. That tells us that his father is not of the earth. It's God himself. The only begotten son of God. The incarnation. He says, hail the incarnate Deity, that means taking on flesh, becoming flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Then you notice he talks about his humanity, pleased as man, with man, to dwell. He gave up the attributes of God to become fully human. He did that, Hebrews says, so we could have a high priest that understands us. He came to go through the same things we go through. He took on flesh, even to death on the cross. That's who he was, Wesley explains in just those few words. 
Now, that, that's part of the good news. Not all the good news. It, that much allows us to worship him. You know, if we just had verse 2, we could worship him. Because he's God. He came to earth to live in the flesh. All of that we understand, but we could worship him for that. But there's a whole lot more to it. Why he came is the rest of the gospel. And that's what Wesley packs into verse 3. So stanza 3 says, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Third verse tells us what Jesus offers. We get the glorious announcement. We get the the doctrine, the theology of who he was. And then we get told what he offers, why he came to earth. And once again, Wesley got it all in there. He starts with light and life he brings to man. Light and life. Not only does he bring eternal life, but he brings light. He brings the best way to live life. Let me go off just on a side road for a moment and, and acknowledge that I'm on a side road and we'll come back to what Wesley said. Uh, the reason I'm going on this side road is because where it says he brings light and life, if you understand John chapter 1, you understand a lot more about what's happening in this world today, especially this week is the reason I'm mentioning this. John chapter 1 says that light came into the world, but the world doesn't like light. That the world is darkness. The world is darkness because that's what Satan has caused to happen. He's convinced men not to honor God. He's convinced men to go away from God. And Romans chapter 1 explains the process they go through when they go away from God and head toward darkness. And John says, that's the way the world is. It doesn't like light. But light came into the world to tell us how to live life the best. Well, this week, we've had a very clear example in the news of how much darkness hates light. The other word for light, John uses, is the word. We've seen this week how much the world, how much darkness hates the Word. They don't want the Word mentioned. The world will punish those who speak the Word of God. It's this light and darkness thing. It's two cultures, two completely different cultures. And once you understand that, you understand what's going on. Now, you put on top of that our American freedoms and everything else, and it makes it more complicated. But as Christians, that's what we ought to recognize. Now, let me get back to this. Wesley said, light and life is to all he brings. 
He's come to give us eternal life. He's come to tell us the best way to live this life. Healing. He's risen with healing in his wings. He came, came to heal us. He came to heal the brokenhearted. He came to heal our sins. He came to uh, die so that our sins could be healed. He had victory over death, Wesley says. He, He was born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. That's what he offers. That's what he came for. He... Death is the enemy of man, and he came to pay the price for us, so it's not our enemy anymore. Now, that's what Wesley so succinctly describes, is here's how he was announced, and here's who he was, and here's what he offers. Everybody here knows most of that. Uh, Especially today, perhaps if this were a regular bright sunny Sunday and we had lots of guests from different places. There might be some here who don't know that, but I imagine most everybody here has been around church and religion and the Bible enough to know that everything I've said is true. All here know that, but let me close with two words that come out of this song. They're old words. They're archaic words. We don't use them anymore. But I want to use them so you know what you ought to do with this song. Here are the two words. The two words are hark and hail. And you say, well, we use those words, yeah, for different things usually. Uh, we don't say hark anymore. Some of them may, we may know what it means. It, it means to pay attention. It means listen up. Yeah, and it was used to grab people's attention. You know, the day instead of hark, we say, hey, you. Hey, pay attention here. That's what hark means. Not quite as classy as hark, but hark, it sounds kind of poetic. And that's what Wesley's telling us. He says, hark, listen up. The angels are proclaiming that salvation's available. Listen to this. They're saying that the Savior has come. Are are you listening? Are you hearkening to that? I know you've heard it before. I know you understand the principles of it, but I want to be sure you, you hark to that. The second word is hail. We don't use that either. It's to acclaim or salute or to acknowledge somebody, something of, of great honor. In the Roman days, when Caesar came into town after a victory or when he traveled anywhere through town, all of the citizens had to stand and raise their hands and say, Avai Caesar, hail Caesar. You had to hail the one who was over you, who was the king, who was the God. And this carol says, hail The heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Acknowledge who He is. Acknowledge that He's the one who gives light and life and healing and eternal life. Hark 
to the announcement, hail the one you're supposed to hail. Let me tell you a story of Tommy as we close. Actually, let me have a man named Henry Carter tell you the story. He's the one that wrote it. He was the administrator of a special home for children. Henry Carter said, I was working on my Christmas sermon, getting ready for Christmas. One of the hardest things for ministers to do is come up with something new every year for Christmas. So I was worried about how it was going to come out. And then the floor attendant came in and said they had another crisis upstairs. It's Christmas Day, or Christmas Eve, and that's a difficult time for the kids in our home. Uh, we have a home, church home, for uh, mentally, uh, emotionally disturbed children. And a lot of them go home just for overnight on this special Christmas Eve. And so the ones who remain, it's really hard for them because there's empty beds and there's things that are different and they don't know how to deal with it. And so I followed her up the stairs and I was unhappy, upset at the interruption. And this time she told me it was Tommy. So we got there and there were six beds in this one room and she pointed to one of them. And I went over and looked all around it and I couldn't see a toe or a hair or anything. Tommy was all the way under the bed and he wouldn't come out. So I walked up close to the bed and I just began to talk to the cowboys and horses on the bedspread. And I told them all about the Christmas tree downstairs. And I told them about the party that we were going to have and told them all the good things that were waiting down there and the packages under the tree and all of that and got no answer. Well, I was getting more upset that I wasn't working on my sermon, so I dropped down on my hands and knees and I lifted the bedspread up and there were two enormous blue eyes. Tommy was staring at me. Tommy was eight. He looked like he was about five. I could have just grabbed him and pulled him out. It would have been easy, but that wasn't what Tommy needed. He needed some trust. He needed to decide some things himself. So I crouched down there on all fours and I told him about the menu. Told him what we were going to have for dinner. Told him all about the Christmas carol that he was supposed to sing and be part of. Told him about the stockings that had his name on it down there. Absolute silence. He just stared at me. No indication that he understood what I was saying or that he cared anything about Christmas. So I thought and thought and finally I couldn't think of anything else to do. So I got down on my stomach and wiggled under the bed beside Tommy. Bed springs were catching on my jacket, but I slid as close to him as I could. For a long time, I just lay there with my cheek on the floor. And then I began to talk about the big wreath that was downstairs, all the candles in the windows, things that were going to happen that night and the next day. And finally, I ran out of things to say, so I just waited there beside him. And as I waited, finally, a small, chilled hand slipped over into mine. 
And after a while, I said, you know, Tommy, it's kind of cramped under here. What do you say we go out? He nodded that that would be all right, so we slipped out from under the bed, slowly and in no hurry. But when I got out from under the bed, all the pressures that I had had been lifted from my shoulders because now I had my Christmas sermon. I understood what Christmas was about. God had called us to. God had called us with his nature, with his mountains and his stars and his majestic creation, and he pleaded with us to love him. But we didn't pay much attention. And when we wouldn't listen, he he got closer to us through the prophets and the lawgivers and all the ones he sent, and he spoke to us face to face that way. But we didn't pay attention then either. And so his ultimate step was that first Christmas when God came down to her. And God came to be where we were. And he lay side by side with us just like us. In our loneliness, in our alienation, God came like I came to Tommy. And when we understand what happened there, then maybe, like Tommy, we'll dare to stretch out our hands and take his. This morning, you know who Jesus is. You know what Jesus offers. Will you hearken to his words? Will you hail him as King and Savior? Will you stretch out your hand and take hold of that love? If you need to this morning, come, let's stand and sing.